Whether you're dealing with does in heat and bucks in rut, the winter blues, the marathon of kidding season in the spring, or show season in the summer, Nate Funk and John Kane of Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast, are with you every step of the way, bringing you interviews from various breeders, judges, and others from all over the country. We're always covering the latest ad good news and covering topics to help make us all better dairy goat breeders. What's up, guys, and welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. Uh, this is John. I'm not on the episode this week besides what you're hearing right now because I'm still producing it. Uh, but I wanted to quickly thank Nate Funk, my co-host and uh, best friend in all of this, and uh, Danielle Caroli and Grace Toy for stepping up and being there for me uh, this week. Is I just feel like I wouldn't have been there mentally this week. Um, for those that uh, are not friends with me on Facebook or uh, following the Ringside Instagram or Facebook uh, pages, um, uh, my family had a difficult week. Um, my wife was hospitalized and uh, for a couple days, and... It was a scary and stressful and confusing time for us. We didn't know what was going on and still don't fully know. Um, but I'm not going to get into all the medical stuff. We'll keep that off of here. But um, my wife is home now. Um, my baby's fine. I'm fine. Um, but it was a long week and stressful and yeah. Anyway, um, I just quickly wanted to say thank you to everybody that reached out to me on Messenger, uh, phone calls, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all that. Um, thank you so much for reaching out and uh, offering prayers and well wishes and good thoughts. Uh, it didn't go unnoticed. You know, Nate always says we're all in this together and it couldn't be any more true than what i have experienced from this community that we've built uh this last week so i just wanted to say thank you guys um you really it really meant a lot and <clears throat> it uh it didn't go unnoticed so yeah, thank you. Anyway, I'm not we're not going <clears> to <throat> we're not going to be blubbering all about that uh this episode. Um I'm not on it, so <laughs> that's why. Uh but Nate is and Danielle Caroli and Grace Toy are and they're talking this week about uh breeding schedules and uh their process and how they they select their pairings and all that good stuff. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys again for stepping up and being there for me. And thank you to the community for always being there for us. Um, it's just we couldn't appreciate we could not appreciate you guys anymore. Um, so, yeah, I'll catch you guys next week uh, where we'll be talking about something. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. Uh, enjoy the episode. 
Good evening, folks, and this is Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm Nate. I'm joined tonight by my co-host tonight, Danielle uh, Carioli, and we have our guest tonight of Grace Toy. Um, we're going to be discussing some uh, some breeding plan stuff um, quickly. Um, how are you guys doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself and Grace? I'm doing well, and I feel like we should warn people. I'm trying to record this in an airport if we hear a lot of background noise today. So, so we're fortunate. Grace and Danielle both have, uh, of course, dairy goats, but they have Nubians. Grace has Sanans as well, and some Munchies. And Danielle, you have some grades. I have a experimental. An experimental. We love her. Um, we do so Grace is traveling right now. So if you hear some noise in the background, um, that's just um, ambience. <laughs> um, well, we got the end of uh, the Adga National Show happened a couple weeks ago. Um, I know most people spent their trips home planning their breeding schedules for this upcoming year. Um, those who, um, were at home already, already poured over their pedigrees and contemplated AI or the box outside. Um, so, uh, we're going to try to take in today, today or tonight and just kind of discuss how we go about making those plans. Um, so, uh. Some people have already started with those plants. Uh, Danielle, have you? A little bit. I haven't put pen to paper yet and started figuring it out, but I do. I did take an inventory of my tank and an inventory of the bucks in my barn and have kind of started planning as well as I may or may not have promised that I will be making a trip to Grace's with a dry yearling because Grace has a buck with spots that um, one of the, uh, Corey, uh, the girl who helps us at the barn, really, really likes. And I hadn't heard the end of it last year that I wasn't using Galaxy, her buck. So that plan is probably the so, you know, that one is definitely in pen. I don't really have a choice on that one. Not that it won't be a fun pairing, but, um, you know, now it's, it's in messages and now it's out in the podcast world that we will be using Galaxy and making people happy. So um, that's the only definite plan I have at this point. It's a small price to pay for your sanity from listening to her <laughs> ask about it. And this way I don't have to worry because she can now drive a trailer too a little bit and, you know, there's going to be days I'm gone and it's a scary thought to think that she's just, you know, taking my bucks because she wants to, you know, throw a spotted animal in here or there and, you know, it's a threat and now it's all, you know, life is good and I don't have to worry about it. Well, you know, <clears throat> First, I hear you say taking inventory of the bucks in your barn. How many do you have in your barn? Oh, um, just three. Well, three. actually four. Sorry. Three, four. four. You miscounted. <laughs> I miscounted. The baby doesn't count yet, so oh. he's not sleepy. Yeah, baby bucks are hard to count. We have two baby bucks, and 
Um, one's going home down south, and uh, the other one we haven't made our mind up about. So, um, but now, Grace, how about you? Have you started? Oh, your yeah, plans? I, I answer that question. Are, are the buck question <laughs> or breeding can... plans? <laughs> I don't know if she can answer how many bucks she has in her barn. Oh, goodness. I do, but it's, it's going to change, and I don't know if I should put it out there. I mean, we have 10 right now. I, I have one who's definitely leaving and probably another one or two that I should let go. One's a La Macha. Uh, we have three Stalin bucks, and then the rest are Nubian. <sighs> a La Macha so, buck? Yes, going. I can hardly use him because I bred him, but I have no. a few people that want to use him, and obviously he's now TikTok famous. So I was going to say, not Michael Scott. Oh, yeah, and he's now my dad's favorite, so I guess he's kind of earned his spot, and he's Galaxy that spotted Buck's buddy, so he's here for the time being. Okay, well. well Sometimes we get a little bit of a pass. Well, I, th- I think we all do, and that's the hard part, especially when you have to try to let them go, um, and you want to find them you know, that right home. And sometimes you second guess whether you've proven them out enough or given them enough of a chance. And then you keep them the extra year and you keep pushing it back and pushing it back. So that's kind of where we're at. I have a few, I have mainly younger bucks. A few reservations worked out pretty quickly, but you know, I have a, not older, but a buck who's a couple years old that needs to, he's done his job. He needs to go. And I have some younger ones that I use pretty heavily. So just making room for all the new guys. Now, is, is part of that that you're finding in, in writing your breeding plan that you're using them less and less because things are related to them? Or? Yes and no. I have my oldest duck I have, and he's one we've already decided we're going to keep him for his life just because he's worked out so well for us. And every kid he puts on the ground is consistent. He has several 90 or higher daughters now, so he's he's earned his place. Um, but I have a few that are related a lot of bucks that are related and it's getting a little bit tight. So it's time to kind of find that magic outcross and hope it works. When you say tight, do you look at percentage numbers on Agda genetics or are you just based on pedigree or how do you determine what is too tight for your herd? I don't in terms, get Sorry. Too, in terms of, yeah. In- I mean, I don't get too wrapped up with the line breeding numbers, and I I, lo- I take a look at it, so I'm aware. But, I mean, right now I have two bucks who I bought, and that wasn't the plan for the younger one, but they have the same sire. So, I mean, they're different dam lines, but still, at some point, you, you got to outcross a little bit and make sure um, what you have is consistent. And um, then I kept a son out of one of them, um, just out of a doe I had purchased, just to be a little bit of an outcross, but... Still, we need a little bit more, so that'll probably happen via AI at some point. Okay, so uh, just uh, you, you, with the line breeding, the inbreeding. Yeah, I know this is a question a lot of people ask. Is to you then? I I, I know my answer. What's your dif- definition of difference between line breeding and inbreeding? Oh, it's line brooding if it works. It's inverting if it doesn't. That's 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 what it, where I was going to go with that. Yeah, that- I mean, it's I I've been pretty successful, which just doesn't work for everybody. I've outcrossed a lot with mine, and it seems 
I, I seem to have a really consistent dam line and I'm sure we'll get into how important a dam line is versus the buck you're working with and looking at his female relatives. Um, but, you know, I, I never got too crazy in breeding. I think sometimes it just gives you more issues than it's worth. And, you know, sometimes people aren't as picky with defects as I might be, or um, I'm pretty particular, especially with the Nubians about rump and um, strength of feet and legs on the Sanin. So I just need to make sure I'm keeping what's important to me and what my herd needs and not getting a little too um, carried away with letting things go just because I want to inbreed on a certain animal a couple generations back. Now, because you have multiple breeds, I know a lot of Nubian breeders say you have to inbreed uh, or line breed, excuse me, a little bit more tightly to have success. And I don't necessarily know if we hear that as much in other breeds. Do you look at it between your Sanans and your Nubians and now your La Manchas differently as far as where you're comfortable with inbreeding um, or line breeding, excuse me? And, um, or is it just kind of the philosophy applies to all three? Um, I mean, I think I, and I'll say by Nubians, I might be a little bit more where I'm trying to line breed and go back to certain key animals that I see have been consistent across other herds and what might cross well. Um, the Sanans are pretty true to type compared to other breeds, not all the time, um, but I don't really even worry about it with them. I've brought in bucks from different herds. I have West Coast, East Coast genetics, and they've all been pretty honest with each line I've brought into since some of our does go back to my original grade doe. Um, other I have two does I had purchased in. So each each of those dam lines seem to be pretty consistent. Where the Nubians, because they started at basically at a complete outcross, um, I don't worry as much, but I have been a little bit more conscientious about it in recent years. And there's certain animals I'm trying to get a little bit um, tighter with, but I don't I don't get too worried. It's one of those things you, you kind of think about it to a point and then you have to just look at the type of the animal and go from there. Oh, okay, now you you mentioning type, um, getting a little bit of to terminology here. Uh, you have we have genotype and phenotype. You know, genotype being the the genetic style, and phenotype being you know what actually manifests itself and what you see. Uh, what do you tend to lean towards, both of you? You know genotype or phenotype do you look at papers and go well that one damn you know had uh uh linear praised with a 38 four rudder and i need four rudder and you go for that or do you look at the dam and go that's the four rudder i want i think that's where kind of where we start going into dam lines and daughters of bucks and hopefully this background noise isn't too bad um but you know i'm very big and i was just talking to dan laney in the car driving back from the show about this but i mean you have to look at a buck for just pieces and you have to look at him for his female relatives and if i look at his daughters like right now i'm looking at one that's consistent in top line and four other um, versus you also have to kind of look at the whole dam line and all right, what traits are consistent from his dam to his grand dam, maybe even look at that great grand dam and see um, when you're looking at that uh, genotype, what is hopefully consistent genetically there, you know, what you're going to get from that buck to bring into your herd. 
when at the same time, I think we can look at, um, we'll get into this after, but you can look at the numbers and the um, PTIs and everything and PTAs, and you can get a little bit carried away with that when sometimes you just have to sit back and kind of look at what does this animal look like and what kind of type do I want to breed to get a, um, you know, consistent animal in the style that you want. I think for myself, I tend to look at phenotype when I am purchasing a buck or purchasing semen from a buck. But then when they're on pre- premise, um, I tend to look more at genotype. I am a firm believer that I'm working with these bucks twice a day, every day, and I want them to be pretty and I want to enjoy them. But I also think in having that mindset of I need a buck that looks good, it also tends to pass those certain traits on to his offspring. Um, I don't know if I've been fortunate, lucky, or if it's just the bucks I've used. But a lot of the times I can look at a buck and see his strengths and weaknesses, and then I'm seeing them on his kids as well. And so I am a firm believer that what the buck shows and his gene, or sorry, his phenotype is what is going to um, be thrown in my herd as I'm using him. But what about when you're talking about a buck, you're trying to get a buck to improve mammary. Uh, now, I have seen bucks with mammaries. That does happen. Uh, I can think of a, a Sonnen buck two or three years back at State Show that had a mammary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, Grace, if you, you remember that one, I think, if you were there. I know uh, I've seen a few. I actually... I have one and I just noticed, I can't remember which buck it was, but I just noticed the other day we have another one of, I believe my two-year-olds that's starting to get one, but I have a, I believe he's five this year, five or six-year-old buck who, I mean, he has an udder and I have a lot of milking daughters on the ground from him. And I, I don't think that as much has to deal with it. And I think you see a little bit more of an issue with, you know, things like mastitis just because of how unsanitary we know bucks may be. Bucks are, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't worry too much about that. And I also have never really bought into, and some people might not like this. I, I don't get too crazy about, well, if he has an udder, he's going to be a production buck. Like, I, I don't always see that. I think there's other genetic factors and potentially even management things that could play into that. Um, but it's just one of those things. I don't, I look at the type of the buck and I kind of, I don't always get too carried away but if there's something that's really concerning and obviously defects I don't ever deal with on my box just because of the chances of things being an issue um, but I definitely I mean if they're they have a level top line nine out of ten times I think a lot of those daughters will especially if it's in the pedigree yes. as well yep so and and everyone has a different opinion some people won't touch an ugly buck and other people I mean there's been some very famous Nubian and Alpine bucks that I can think of that you know there wasn't pictures really shared of them for a reason. So sometimes it yep. just works. Yeah. Now what about though, you know, again, looking at those bucks, we talk about looking at the bucks, but you can't really tell. And that's where I was kind of getting with the, the mammary comment was you can't really tell with the buck themselves about the mammary by looking at the buck. It's kind of an unknown unless you can look at say the dam, his dam, and then look at his daughter's see the changes he's made in the daughters over their dams 
Well, and then there are some things that help indicate that you can see on a buck that indicate whether or not that mammary system is going to be the desirable mammary system you're looking at. You, especially the rump, um, a lot of people say, and I'm a firm believer that when you look at that rump, you need to be able to figure that your rump is going to, if you look at it like a garage, you want to be able to park a big Mack truck in that garage and the Mack truck is the mammary system. You're not looking to put a little mini coop in there. You need, and if you were looking to put a mini coop in, your rump could be a lot smaller, flat, uh, not as level, not as wide, because you just don't need that space. But when you want that space for that wide rear udder arch and the balance of that mammary system and the extension of fore udder, you need a rump that's going to accommodate the lateral attachments, the rear udder attachments, and the fore udder attachments that are going to support that mammary system. So I think that, yes, you're not going to necessarily see what the buck is throwing mammaries system-wise just by looking at him, but there are things that will indicate whether or not it is going, in my opinion, it is going to be worth it or it's going to do what you need. But then for whatever reason, you want to use this buck anyway. And hopefully if it's a buck in your breeding program, you have seen the dam and you know what the dam's mammary system it looks like. You know what his ancestors look like as well. You've maybe seen a few daughters and you can see those mammary systems and compare them. And I think it you just kind of have to, as you're creating a breeding program, you kind of have to paint a picture in your mind of all these different components and then um, put them together into kind of a collage and go, okay, this is what, this is the potential of what we can get in this breeding. I want to go back. So just to, what you're saying about the rump is basically the longer, the leveler from hooks to pins and the wider from thorough to thorough and the leveler from thorough to thorough, the more room you'll have below that hip structure to attach a mammary. Is that what you're Correct, saying? yes. Okay. And I think you have to you have to keep in mind this is probably more of a Nubian Nigerian thing than anything. But you have to look at that thorough placement too. And typically oh, yes. when you get those wider rumps, the thoroughs are placed better. I, I typically see that correlation. But sometimes you see those Nigerian or Nubian does where they're a little bit lower than they should be. And you know when that mammary system comes in, they talk about, you know, it's more like an Instead of the nice U rear udder arch, you're going to get a really tight one. And it's going to look like an upside down heart. And you don't want to get those narrow rumps and where this doe has all this milk and there's nowhere to put it um, up into the escutcheon. So when you have that wider rump, you want that thorough higher then? Yeah, you want it to be pretty level. And I, I make this comment to my 4 because it's one of those things that gets in their head. Um, but I, I joke and I say, I want to be able to set my giant obnoxious sized iPhone on the rump of that doe while I'm clipping her and just, you know, listen to a podcast or watch Netflix and it gets them to remember about, it and it's an easy way to explain it. I, I talk about eating a meal on those rumps, you know, you know, you want that love, you know, rump that you eat your lunch on it. Yep. Uh, you can set that dinner plate down on it. Exactly. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you look at, I know you, animals where they have that, as you said, that narrower rump and, and, you look down at that escutcheon at the rear of the arch, and as you said, it's got that heart shape. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so 
you know, you when you're thinking about these bucks, you want to look at the dam. You want to look at the phenotype. You know, how do they do they look? Um, and then you know, possibly consider the genotype for once they're there on the property and comparing what you've got. Um, would you guys agree? Yeah, and and I mean, I think we might have gotten into this on the last one. You know, I some people are afraid to use younger buck, but the faster you get those daughters on the ground, the faster you see otters out of them. I mean, and that plays into getting the PTI and PTA numbers and everything, and all of that helps you be a little bit better at predicting what he's going to produce and how those daughters are going to turn out, or if he produces um, poor mammaries or type issues, you can kind of get rid of them faster and find something that works. Okay, so we've all been talking about, you know, picking the senior bucks, um, you know, because you're looking at the daughters, but how do you pick that junior buck to use? I mean, you don't have daughters' memories to look at. How do you go about that? Grace? I mean, no? yeah, nine, nine out of ten times, I think, just because of the lack of market for those senior bucks and those senior bucks that are proven because – I mean, typically by the time you have, in theory, you have enough daughters on the ground, he's either, they're going to hold on to him or he's kind of going to have a pipeline where he's going or they just didn't turn out and they might not be something you're interested in. So I feel like choosing them, it really goes all the way again, back to dam lines and female relatives and finding that doe that you're interested in that has, and has that dam line and the daughters or sons that are doing what you need. Um, and again, looking at that genotype and the phenotype on her, is she, does she have the mammary you need? Is, is it just your basic stuff? Is it well attached? Does she have the strong feet, the top line, all those really basic things that most bucks need. Uh, but again, it's, everyone's a little bit different on their basis of bringing in junior bucks and then really get into how, how much you want to use them and how much faith you have in them versus what other bucks you might have on site. Well, you also have the availability factor, too. Um, as you mentioned, how often do people publicly list a senior buck for sale? It's very rare, in, especially when you're choosing genetics that you want in your herd and you're in this place where you're looking for specific traits to be passed on. It's very rare that you're going to find senior bucks available in the market that fit the bill of what you're looking at. Um, basic, prop, most likely because either it works really well for the breeder, or the breeder, like you said, has a pipeline for it, or it didn't work out and the buck will disappear. So the availability of genetics is definitely there more in those junior bucks, and it gives you a wide range of animals to pull from also easier for transporting. Um, you can throw a bucket in, uh, or not throw, you can very nicely pack this bucket with um, a bunch of shavings and carpet and, or maybe not shavings depending on the airline regulations, but the buckets can uh, fit yeah. in the crate and they can go across country very easily to get these genetics that you have to choose from. And so, when I'm looking for a new herd sire, typically he's coming in as a buck kid. And I, when I'm selecting those animals, kind of as Grace has said, I'm going off of the dams and the relatives and 
what I'm hoping he's going to throw in my herd. And just like a senior buck, even though they may have all this data behind them or you've seen daughters, until you actually start using him and using him heavily in your herd, you have no idea what it's really going to throw and how that buck is going to cross with your animals. Now, would you and guys, this is I, where, what, and this is just kind of where, um, kind of taking into consideration driveway breedings and one of their bucks, you can buy straws from some and, you know, some people like us wait to market them. So you might not be able to have access to him until he might be out of your price range or just availability is a little bit tight, but sometimes you can find those really nice bucks that are allowed to do a driveway breeding to typically clean does and everything. And that's a really good way to bring in that outcross or bring in um, that buck that you might not be able to purchase, but you can at least use him and get a son or get some daughters to kind of work into your herd and get those parts that you might want to add from him. Let's talk about driveway breedings really quick, just because it is such a vital way to easily improve your breeding program with bucks. Um, that, again, you may not have access to or that do have a proven track record. Do you, I know, like I said earlier in the podcast, that we'll be bringing our dough to you, but what do you find with stud service? What are some of the things that you as a breeder look for in people coming to you um, and then yourself as a breeder going to other herds for stud? So, um, and I will say kind of, I've had this conversation with a few people lately. Um, you obviously, you are taking a knowing chance, letting people use a buck. Um, but at the same time, it gets into, you know, you need that data to help prove out a buck. And if people want to buy straws from him or use him in the future, you need to show that he's working across multiple herds and not just your gene pool and what animals you have in your herd. So that's, that is really the main reason we allow people to use our bucks. And I'm very particular about testing and um, everything. And I definitely, I, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I charge enough that because we live in an area where, you know, you have the kind of weekend farmers and everybody who might not be testing and is um, just knowledgeable about parasites and everything in our area, you kind of charge enough that it kind of lets those people go to a smaller herd or even purchase a buck just because it seems easier to them. Uh, but, you know, that all that data and talking about, you know, getting more linear appraisal or getting more DHI data on those does, it all goes goes back to proving out that buck and just the faster you can learn what he's producing, the more um, effective you are at predicting things, whether it's the type or just on your own. Um, but I, you know, I think I told this story when we recorded this last time, you know, I've, I've had quite a few people come different years and try different bucks. And I had one woman and this, this really gets into how important, yes, the data is, but also just talking to people and what they physically see in those kids and his daughters, um, because, you know, she wanted, she came from um, somebody or bought goats from somebody who was very particular about the data. And she bred pretty much exclusively on PTA. Um, and just, you know, she wanted to make sure all those numbers were blue across the board. And I had a younger buck who had a much higher number just because of the amount of data behind him than my other buck. Um, and I kind of told her, you know, type-wise, I might go with the older one than the younger one, just I think she'd he'd match better with her doe. And, you know, she ended up using the younger one that year. And she came back the next year or the year after and used 
ended up using the older one on my recommendation. And she came back to me another year later after using the second one and kind of said, I probably should have listened to you the first time. And I just told her, I know, but, you know, we all kind of have to, it's your money and how you want to spend it. And sometimes we have to learn that way. But it's just a really important lesson when you're buying animals you can't see in person um, or just talking to people that have younger bucks to say, you know, what are you seeing from him so far across all of his kids? And, you know, how do you think it would cross with my herd or the doe you want to bring there? Um, but, it, you know, driveway breeding does open up a huge window of other genetic possibilities that you might can't afford or um, if you can't keep a buck on your property. So I think it's one of those things definitely to be open to. I, I think that, you know, again, with the driveway breeding, it allows, as you've pointed out, access to that genetic, you know, someone else brought this beautiful buck in, he used it, they've used them on their herd. Now they want to get him out there. Um, but as far as the breeder, you're, you're right, you know, people talk about proving a buck or, you know, get daughters out there. You want to get daughters, maybe even sons out there um, to get some numbers populated for that buck, um, I think. Uh, but also for me, it's good. I like seeing what he does, what that sire does in other herds. You know, whether he, you know, did he fix the mammaries in that herd? Um, yeah, because that's going to help with selling does and, and bucks down the line of, you know, hey, you know, this person over here used him and he fixed her, you know, the herd issue on a four rudder or help them with um, rear rudder or with rumps. And it's not necessarily just in your herd. Um, so I think, you know, driveway breeding for the breeder, it helps. But I think where we're hesitant is that biosecurity. Um, just, you know, we want healthy animals coming in. We personally require the testing, as you've mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I, I can I can see where that goes. And it's one of those things. We've all invested money in our bucks to improve our breeding programs um, specifically. They're not on the ground, at least in my farm, they're not on the ground to be used by others. If people want to use them, that's fine. But the traits that they're supposed to be bringing in are traits that I want in my herd. And I know I can tell people that, yes, this buck may work on your doe because I see him throwing a lot of larger or wider rumps. And he also has a lot of milk production behind him and this, that, and the other thing. So in choosing between the bucks in my herd, this is the one that's better for you know stud for your doe however we are the ones feeding them we're the ones taking care of them every day we're the ones washing our clothes because before we go out in public because (laughs) they reek and it's all over us and you know we're dealing with all this we're dealing with all this fun stuff of buck management which is a whole nother ball game compared to taking care of does. And so with that, you know, it is something that when the breeder asks for, um, when the breeder asks for testing, there's a reason, you know, there is a high value to these animals. 
um, for those breeders. So when they ask for testing or when they're making plans and asking, you know, dates, times to be available, it, it does take a lot for us to have these, sorry, excuse my dog. Um, it does take a lot to have these animals available for stud for other people too. So just something to be cognizant of. Okay. While you appease the the pup there, uh, I do have a question for both of you. Uh, Kind of uh, side side question. Have your buck started sinking yet? I don't want to talk about it. Oh, did you have a bad experience last night? I know you had a dinner engagement. (laughs) Uh, no, I was fortunate enough that I ran out be- and I had Corey do chores for me. So I didn't have to, um, she was kind enough to do that. So I didn't have to worry about that. But I will say that we keep our bucks significantly away from the does, but the wind this year is blowing up and we still stink now. And we've been stinking since July after we do buck chores. Oh, we started. It's been in, wonderful in... to walk out to that smell every morning, and oh yeah, you know. Then the neighbors kind of start asking, "What's that smell?" And you're like, "Oh, I don't know. It must be the neighbor next door." I, yeah, <laughs> I'm fortunate. My neighbors raised goats when they were younger, so they know about the buck sink. Um, I I asked just because we have you know we have our two senior bucks, and they're they're two years old, but they act like they're bucklings, and they play with their food dish, and so it always ends up in the farthest back corner of their pen and i end up being the one who gets to go in with these two large box you know lux and Lecadio. and they they immediately they come over like cats because they come over to me and then they start rubbing on me as i'm trying to stagger over to the corner of their pen pick up the food dish turn it over and then i dump the food and suddenly poof they don't care that i'm there but I end up walking out of there just reeking of buck. So, it, and then makes... people wonder why we charge so much for them to come breed a doe. And it's like, well, it's it's more for my time and stress than anything else. Well, and, and, and it's the, the fact that I'm going to have to do laundry in five seconds after you leave because yep, my you're just paying are... for my detergent. Exactly. I say my kids' sales pay for the future hair um, dye I'm going to need for all my gray hairs during kidding season, and my stud service is for my laundry detergent. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I got a question. We're going to uh, touch on this. We, we keep periodically talking about AI, and this kind of comes into your selecting of your senior box and, you know, generally it's the senior box that have been collected and Many of the, the hot item bucks tend to be older as well. Um, you both do AI, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Um, now, do you go through the, all the same processes for picking your AI? Um, do you ever get a, a wild hair and go, hey, this one, I want to try this buck that no one's thought of? Or what? what's your, I mean... With AI, do you still go through the same processes? Yeah, yes and no. I feel like just because typically when you have that buck sitting in the tank, there might be a little bit more time, depending on if, because typically when you're going to spend the money on getting straws, it's going to be a buck who's proven or 
has, you know, is getting to the point where there might be a, you know, if he's collected a year or two old and he has some nice daughters that are kids on the ground or his dam is starting to turn into something. Um, so, I mean, I might look a little bit even more than obviously a buck kid at, you know, the data behind him as far as what his potential is and what his daughters are already producing, um, you know, and look like in type and everything. But again, sometimes you also are just really doing it to get that genetic because maybe it's a son of a doe who's been dead for several years and you're trying to line brood on it. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it just because there's such a massive gene pool to look at. And, you know, you can go back 20, 30 years and pull a straw out and get kids from that sire. Yeah. You know, I, 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 one thing that I also try to throw in there or started trying to throw in there is I want to see the daughters, but I also want to see the, the dams of those daughters. Um, it's, maybe I'm just a bit eccentric on this because the daughters may have beautiful udders, um, but did the buck make that beautiful udder? Or did the daughter inherit the beautiful udder from the dam already, who already had a beautiful udder? So I want to compare the daughter from the dam, you know, the dam and daughter comparison to see what change that buck made in the daughter over the dam and was it good? Um, that's just something and I, I think, of- again, I'm going to keep talking about dam lines because, you know, I'm crazy about the importance of that. Um, but I mean, that is important. And I've, there's been does that I've really liked and whether their dam or grand dam was not the same quality that they are. And, you know, maybe it was a spectacular buck. Maybe it was just luck. Um, but, you know, I'm still very cautious of, you know, I need to see the whole picture and not just what that buck is doing. And, you know, there's been a few once in a lifetime bucks out there, maybe a handful of that per breed. Um, but I think it's, you know, you have to look at the whole picture and not just what he's producing. Um, and, you know, that even goes when you think about AI. Sometimes there's bucks that really didn't produce anything very good. But you also need to look back and see if that's really his fault or he just didn't have the opportunity because he was used in such a small pool of does. A small pool of does or even does that, um, especially when you start looking at older does, look back, I think about Oberhasleys back in the early 90s. Um, compare them to Oberhasleys now, and they're almost separate breeds, just in the, the quality difference. Um, so, you know, was, they, was the buck used on poor quality, though, the poorer, maybe not poor quality for when they were, but poorer quality does. You know, if, if the, maybe that's something to think about even with live cover, I guess, is, is the buck who's not showing beautiful kids is he improving over those those does i don't know what do you guys think i completely agree that you as you kind of start delving in and i can i don't even want to think of how many hours it takes for me to even kind of consider to start to consider that maybe i need to add this animal genetics to my herd and all the research on agda genetics and on websites and facebook and trying to you know creep on people's 
barn pictures to see if I can find a <laughs> candidate of somebody's animal in the barn and, you know, make sure what I'm seeing if I can't see these animals in person is what I want or finding these old animals back in the pedigree to kind of put together this picture. Um, but with that being said, oh shoot, hold on. I lost my, what was the question? Sorry. I lost, completely lost the train of thought there with basically using older bucks. Um, and, and I think I know where you're going with using older bucks and you know, the, the does oh, management, management. way back then. There we go. Yeah. Yes. So you start to look and then you start to consider that, okay, these herds used it and maybe the scores weren't necessarily the greatest, but this herd didn't have the same management as this herd did, or this herd has some more similar management to my herd. So this is more of what those daughters are going to look like. Um, and so you do have to consider when you're looking at those linear appraisal scores, oh, this outlier, why is there an outlier? Oh, well, this actually is a cross that, you know, if it's a poor linear appraisal score, this animal here is more of an outcross than anything else they've been using. Or this animal here is a yearling and she might have just freshened before she had her linear appraisal score. And so is this gawky yearling, but then you know, something happened to her and there's a two-year-old picture, but she doesn't have that appraisal score, but she's still kind of turned out. It's all putting pieces of the puzzle together. And I think this is just the magic and art of breeding is putting those little pieces of the puzzles together to get what you hope to be the picture of what that's going to pass on to your animal and just kind of collecting all the data and just putting it there. And by data, it's not even really actual data, but just all the information, I should say, and putting it out in there to make those guided breeding decisions. And sometimes, again, I think I said this in our old recording, I, you have to kind of take that leap of faith. And if certain genetics work for you and you think that pedigree might work, buy the straws or if the buck isn't too expensive, you know, maybe try to get a hold of him or use that via driveway breeding just to see if it works. Because like you said, sometimes it just... It doesn't work for one person. It still might work for you. And you, you just have to kind of experiment and know your genetics to um, get better at predicting what's going to actually cross well, whether you're looking at, you know, what type of a certain line might cross well or just certain, you know, inbreeding or certain animals in that pedigree. Right. Well, and, and I think in, in conversations previously, you know, we've all kind of talked about how, you know, you even get some of that. You kind of touched down a little bit there, Danielle, is, um, that that's kind of the uh, using the the management to get the animal to manifest its genetic potential. Um, you know, poor poor management, and you're not going to get that that beautiful doe that maybe genetically it may be able to do, um, but if it's not getting the good nutrition, it's not getting the care. It's just not going to shine the way it really should, you know, genetically that, that, so the genotype may be there, but phonetically it's not going to work out. Um, now a quick question. I, um, for both of you with mentioning AI back there. Yes. Um, do you guys believe in candidate does? 
Do you know oh. what I mean by candidate does? Those who, yeah, there, there uh, may be some does who can, uh, who will take to AI and some does that just won't. And actually, this is kind of loaded because we have a specialty with Danielle. I firmly believe in candidate does. And just from my experience, I know I have does in my herd that I can more as soon as I figure out their timing. And I, so there's two things with AI that are really important timing and then also semen quality. Um, yep. But that's another thing. Um, but as soon as I know these does timing, I know I can more or less walk by with the AI gun and get them inseminated. Um, I had one doe who we ended up calling her kids just a splash and shot in the dark because <laughs> we decided to come into heat and um, we, we knew we were going to AI her. And it was, I think it was like Thanksgiving day or the night before Thanksgiving. So of course we we're prepping and getting everything ready. It was also the coldest day in November and as we're AIing this doe, and of course, when you're AIing a doe, she's possibly receptive to a buck, but also she's just out of that. She's, you kind of want to hit her when she's no longer as interested in the buck as she would be in a full standing heat. So breeding her to a live buck probably wasn't really an option. But right. so we defrost the straw. We're in. We have multiple flashlights in my kit, but the one flashlight's flickering in and out. The other flashlight's dead, and which I found out later was because the batteries were gone because it was so cold and um, it was it was a freezing cold night in November. And so we're AIing, trying to do it. The flashlight went out. We basically just said, "All right, well, the straw's already defrosted." It's been about 20 or not, sorry, it's been about 15 minutes. Let's just put her in, put it in there and see what happens. Lo and behold, she took. Um, I have another doe that I need vet assistance on if I want to AI her. Um, and she probably is no longer, well, and she has taken AI, but I need vet assistance. She does not stand still while I'm AIing her. So I do have um i have to have my vet come out and slightly sedate her to get her to stand still and allow me to ai her this year we found out that her cervix because she's now an older doe her cervix isn't quite in a really strong position so okay it's she's kind of has now her cervix is a little off is more off centered it's almost tilted so to get that straw or that AI gun in her, you're not really, it's, it's not really easy to do that. So she's probably no longer an AI deal. Plus now that she's older, she's very sensitive to sedation to the point where we now know that we can give her about a half of a dose of her standard sedation. I think, I don't remember exactly what my vet uses, but there was a time where we tried AIing her and she was sedated. Again, we underestimated the dose of sedation for based on her weight and gave it to her, but she just passed out 
just completely passed out. So we were trying to AI her, passed out on the stand. And, you know, we were on the floor with the speculum in there, you know, trying to get it in. She's just no longer a viable AI candidate. Then I had another doe who I swore this was going to be the same situation, but I wanted to AI her. And I'm like, all right, let me just see before I call my vet out. Let me just see. She stood perfectly, ended up taking. We're not going to talk about what she had because, you know, she just decided to in spite, you know, to spite me and continue on her buck streak. But that's another story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, That was a fun one. But I was thought for sure that I was going to have issues. She's not a very, she doesn't like to stand on the stand for milking. She's very antsy. Probably the best day dough I've ever AI'd, just like ease and it was all chill and great. So I think in terms of behavior, there's definitely um, AI candidates. But then also you have to know your does and know the timing. Um, some does are going to be better at 36 hours. Some are going to be 48. I also know that there's – and that's just in my Nubians. I know – I have a friend who has Alpines – and Nubians, they have more success at 24 hours after they see a standing heat. So it's kind of knowing your does too. Do, do you go with the hours thing or do you go with like for us, um, the way we deal with it is when the does in heat and if she's an AI candidate, we parade her and we call it parading. We take her down to the buck pens. Is she still interested if she stands there, tongue hanging out, wagging her tail? No, she's not, she's not ready. But when she is happy to go down there, she sniffs the box, and then she's kind of like, nah, what's over here? That's about when we figure she's ready. But then again, we may have a lower uh, AI conception rate than you do. So when I talk about ours, I actually do more of your method, but I kind of factor... So why I'm saying 48 hours or 36 hours is because it's chore time in the morning, chore time in the evening, and it roughly works out to be 12, you know, we'll pretend I do 12 hour intervals with um, my chores. So I do the same thing and I go, okay, I really start looking after about 24 hours after she's, after I've caught her in heat. So I, during breeding season, I run my bucks into the barn twice a day. Um, they go up. I see who's in heat in the morning. They come, they go back in, at night and I see who's in heat there. So I'm catching them in the, if I catch them in there and they're in heat in the morning, I kind of start my 24 hours or, and then, you know, go to 36 you, hours, 48 hours. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that when I, so my clock isn't as specific, like, Yep, she started heat at 7.04 and at, you know, 7.05 the next day, I may, you know, that's 24 hours. It's kind of that, my cycle of chores, all right, this is, you know, one chore cycle, two chore cycles through. And I do the exact same thing. I bring the buck up and if she's there and she's interested, I go, okay, bring her back. And then as soon as she starts to just kind of be like, yeah, I'm in heat, but I'm so over it. Like, this is done. Yeah. I'll start looking and then I check, you know, mucus coloring and the coloring of her um, vaginal tract and all of those things. And, and I'll add, Danielle kind of touched on this before, but 
I mean, even you have to kind of consider, and this is where, you know, really specific note taking on kiddings and everything comes into play, you know, and having tried to AI that dough in the past, you have to keep track of, all right, where is the cervix on this dough? Is it, is she really a good candidate? You know, if she has, has had kidding issues or she's tricky to catch, you know, even for live breeding when she's in a tough heat. Those are obviously does. Are you going to waste the money to throw a straw in unless it's cheap? Um, so those are things to keep in mind too. Now, what about like those where you know you've gotten it at, you know she's normal at 36 hours. You put the speculum in. You've checked, you know, the discharge. It's right. Um, you know you've gotten, you know, pop, 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 the three cervixes. you pop gotten through, you put that cervix, that straw and that semen in there, you've done it almost textbook, but she never takes, but she'll take the live breeding. See, for us, we would say that that's not a candidate though. Um, well, but the thing about that is, are you checking your semen quality before you're putting it in? Do you do it before or do you do it after? So... The best way to do it, in my opinion, is to, if you want, if you're questioning about this dough and if it's a specific buck, you do want to check it beforehand. If you haven't checked it, I tend to say take a drop first, quickly put it on your microscope and see because especially living in the Northeast and AIing in a barn your um, your lab conditions, and I say lab in quotation marks, are not ideal. Your, your semen is now experiencing all this cold shock, um, cold temperatures with your microscope, with your slides, all these things. So what you're seeing to get the most accurate sample of what you're going to be seeing and what you're putting into the dough, you really should get a drop and just check it before you, like right after it's thawed, to check it, make sure you see swimmers, and then um, and make sure you have, you know, 60% or more um, post-thaw motility. Before I, I've done it, it that way, and Danielle knows too. I have a slide warmer. So sometimes mm. what I'll do, depending on the straw, is I'll just throw the straw right in the dough and then I run it up to the house and I put some on the slide warmer so it's still at a decent temperature and then I look at the motility on the on, on the um, microscope and I've done it where I brought it down and you put a drop on and then AI the dough and you know I'll try to kind of check it in between or if I have somebody there but you know there's different ways of doing it but I think it's important to check it because I even I bought um, straws last year and I checked it and the quality is horrible. So at least I wasn't wasting a ton of time um, just keeping this, you know, the semen around and keep trying to throw it in doughs when, you know, it's it's likely not going to settle a dough. And okay. also thinking it's your technique that's where the issue is and that you're doing this and you're not getting these animals to settle. And it's not you at all. It's what you're, you know, it's the quality of the sperm in that is in there. And so that's why, I mean, now again, I've had, I've purchased straws where I've seen it. And so that, that's another part of the reason why I check beforehand too. If I haven't checked. So if this is like the first batch 
or not the first, not first batch, but if like this is the first straw I've used of a certain buck, that's why I check it first because if I'm not seeing all the swimmers I want to see or if I'm seeing, um, you know, issues with how they're swimming or, you know, cut heads or no tails, what have you, I'm going to then put that – if I didn't see that beforehand, I'm going to put it in the goat and then walk away, check it. She's already been AI'd. All of a sudden now I'm looking if I want to try on a different buck in my tank. But now I have to definitely AI the kit or not um, – if I don't want to – sorry, I would DNA have to type. DNA type the kids. And so it just saves a whole bunch of time if you find out beforehand that you are um, – you know – it's not probably going to put something up that's going to result in a conception. And and the other thing is, while well, you kind of brought up DNA, just always make sure that a collection report and, you know, DNA is on file, especially if you're going to throw two straws and just kind of look at ad genetics and check for that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, multiple sire, using multiple sires at one time and using DNA. But um, it's just. But as somebody who's gotten, this is a live breeding, but gotten multiple kids out of a breeding from different sires, just always double check. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk, as we're talking about that, can we talk about that really quick? And the idea of using two bucks on a doe at one time? Whether through AI or live breeding? Yeah. Do you want me to tell my situation? Yeah, Grace, go for it. (laughs) So we obviously, we got La Mancha's, our oldest doe is three years old now, and I have said I'm not going to keep a buck, and now I have a buck reservation, so that'll be interesting. But I drive over an hour um, one way to use a buck, and I have a doe who I've decided, and the breeder told me after the fact that her mother also doesn't like to travel. So I think that's a big part of why I sometimes have a little bit of trouble getting her to settle when I take her to a buck. Um, so we finally decided all the bucks we were using were DNA types and the breeder and I have talked and said, you know, let's just use these two bucks on her. And they were actually half brothers, the same sire. And, you know, we brought them both to the doe. She settles, she kids. And I'm kind of looking at them and I'm looking at the colors of these kids. And, you know, it's just like the face on them. And I'm thinking there's no way we got two sires, but they didn't quite look the same so we obviously i pulled hair on them as um we dna type everything but absolutely if there's any potential for multiple sires and dna type them and one is from one buck and one is from the other see now my dna type story two two straws is two straws on one doe and uh it was one of these cases where we did it the the other way of checking semen where we had we had a doe and we AI'd her um we had the the semen was such that we we generally the batch was good so we had no doubt you know to doubt it but we put it in her you know we had the three pop 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 beautiful put it in and our kids were you know we try to teach our kids science through agriculture. So we, we put a drop on the slide, put it under the microscope. Million dead sperm and one or two live ones. Ugh. 
So we look, we pull another straw, and we just, we don't even put it in her. We just check it. Second straw. Million dead sperm, one or two live ones. So we look at each other. We got the dough on the stand. We, you know, we got the speculum. We got everything set. So we said, well, we, this was the backup plan was to repeat a breeding. So we pulled a, a straw out, another straw from a different buck, put it up in there. She took. So the question is, did the millions in the second buck sperm, because we checked that one too, it was like a million live sperm. You know, beautiful. It was, again, textbook. So we're 95 or 98% sure that the second buck we used was the one who sired these, this dough in the buck. But we can't say for certain 100% that that's it. So here we are. We're sending in DNA on them. Yeah. But that's probably not what people like uh, yeah. Julie, who who did the two bucks for fun, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you also, if you're getting light in the air and you really want to have one last AI attempt, I mean, if that buck is on file and your live bucks on file, you could always make sure at least she settles, throw the straw in and then um, just breed her to a live buck. So just at least she freshens before, you know, if it's your last heat of the year and you just want to try it for the sake of it. I mean, that's another option too, just as insurance. So it's just the pushing the importance of you need to DNA type if there's any potential for multiple sires. So no, exactly. You definitely DNA type your animals. It's so <laughs> vital and so important and it just makes your life so much easier going forward if anything you know because we've all been there where there's a buck is jumps out and you don't know if he actually bred your doe you lose him and you need to you know dna type your animals it makes life easier and it solves a lot of headaches potential headaches down the road and i will say since we brought up my Nubian buck galaxy. I mean, he was a situation too. I had a buck who he had, we're not really sure what happened, but he had had some health issues. And um, since I'm sitting in an airport, I um, won't we'll get too into detail, but he, we were questioning if he was going to be viable to breed that year. So we jumped him on a doe and then we bred her to another buck just as insurance to make sure she settled. And some lo and behold, her two buckets, I only had typed one. I only sold one but he was from the buck we weren't sure. And we ended up losing him that year. So it's one of those situations. I mean, sometimes you do it for one reason or another just to try it and as insurance, but I mean, it can work out in your favor. And, you know, like if Julie put the two bucks in, I mean, you can prove out a buck by having more kids or more daughters on the ground faster that way, you know, and you just, you can prove out that dough as well. And I mean, the thing about it too is if you have two bucks that you want to see what happens and what they throw, it does give you, or heck, even three bucks, but then you're hoping and praying that, you know, that they have triplets and each one is um, from a different buck and then that gets all kind of crazy. But if you have a doe where you're like, oh, 
this animal could be a cool cross and this animal could be a cool cross because we have AI or not AI, sorry, DNA typing in our toolkit, you can go, all right, so we're just going to throw them together and see what happens and see whose kids when they're born are whose. And hopefully in those cases, you're, you get one of each. And this way you can say, ooh, buck A really throws a gorgeous top line and buck B, eh, his feet and legs aren't what I was hoping for. But you've seen what works with this dam in one generation instead of two. So there is definitely merit and opportunity in using multiple bucks and, you know, utilizing DNA as part of DNA typing as part of your breeding program. And 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 that's like my situation. I mean, now I've saved myself a trip because if I hadn't gotten the buck kid out of those two bucks and, you know, gotten to see what the other one produced, I would have wasted a year and, you know, time and everything going back to probably try and use him because the other one worked out. And I mean, he's, he's turned out, but I like the sister better. So I kind of got the better of the two and I didn't have to spend a year breeding that doe to that other buck. Yeah. So I think, I mean, definitely use the DNA um, to you know, confirm what the breedings are. I, I think we're getting to a point where we probably really ought to wrap this up. Um, so I think, you know, as we're all looking at breeding plans coming up in the, you know, the coming weeks, months, um, I, I think there's a, a quite a bit, you know, look at research your, your box go ahead and make that breeding plan. You know, maybe even if you have the resources, be a little ambitious. Um, You guys have anything you want to add? I just want to add that, you know, as we're talking and stressing the importance to have fun with it. And I mean, I know there's a herd in upstate New York that jokes about their breeding plans and they have quite a successful herd. Their breeding plans are made based on the beers they pull out of their cooler or something like that. Um, I know the herd. <laughs> yeah, you, you know the story. So <laughs> Yes, I do. You know, and so, you know, things like that, it's all part of, you know, you have to be doing this. And yes, as breeders, we are working to improve the breeds and breed quality animals. But make sure you're doing it you know, you're having fun and enjoying it as you're doing it. And also half the time, you know, you may have these plans, but things change. Gut reactions, you will hear other, we didn't, one of the things we didn't talk about, but gut reactions sometimes and which buck you pull because you had the last minute change of heart, go with your gut too, because ultimately, you know, you know what you're doing subconsciously, but there is a magic to it. And sometimes these things just, it just, everything comes together. And so you got to let it happen. And whether that's picking a beer and whatever fateful beer you're choosing or however your breeding plans get made, you just got to let it happen and see what happens. Yeah. I think I said this at the end of ours, I'll shorten it a little bit. Um, But I mean, I, I said, you have to have confidence in your own decisions and you have to know your own animals and I mean, listen to mentors, listen to people, but at the end of the day, you're the one feeding them. You're the one paying for them and you have to look at them every day. And the people who like to make side comments at shows 
in even, you know, the judges, the appraiser, they see them one day a year. Um, you know, some friends only see them at a show and that's not the full picture. And you have to know what your animal looks like on a regular basis. And, you know, that's just have confidence in your own herd and, you know, breed for the style animal you like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great place. Yeah. I agree. Um, Danielle, thank you. No problem. My pleasure. I'm just waiting on the t-shirt now that I've, you know, made an appearance (laughs) several times. I am expecting the ringside podcasting t-shirt to wear. I feel like, you know, I'll get, I'll I'll get John on it. I'm actually wearing mine right now. So um, I need a (laughs) t-shirt. Will do. And Grace, thank you ever so much. Thanks for keeping me busy while I wait in an airport. (laughs) Well, and, and thank you you know, hopefully safe travels there. So thank you. This has been ringside an American dairy goat podcast. Thank you very much. Ringside an American dairy goat podcast is not an affiliate of the American dairy goat association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.